Monday, Monday afternoon, afternoon. Theologians. 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 Today's topic is kind of interesting, and, and if I remember correctly, you fairly recently, for me not quite so much, uh, <laughs> had an experience where you were able to get in touch with your inner new ager, yes, but yes. not necessarily in the way that we're going to talk about later. No, I hope not, but yes, <laughs> I did. I, I started feeling like I was approaching a new age when I started getting mail saying that I needed to opt into some sort of Medicare program. Ooh. And I thought, oh, I don't know if I want to really admit that or not, but I didn't have a choice because we kind of have to do that. And then I realized that people give me discounts for being old. And I thought, ooh, I might have to just lean into this and embrace it. And then say, if this is new ageism, count me in, buddy. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I usually go to one of our local thrift stores for another project that I have on mm -hmm. Tuesdays because they have a, a discount program for seniors yes. on uh, on Tuesdays. And when the gal asked me if I'm military or veteran or senior, I usually say at least one of those. That's good. At least <laughs> one is good. And you're not giving anything away. No, no. <laughs> I, I started to feel a little bit bad one time, quite a bit before I hit the Medicare age and some young lady at the McDonald's I went to to get some coffee said, oh, and I, I just gave you the senior discount. <laughs> and I didn't know if I should be offended or grateful. <laughs> I realized, though, that there are some perks. So when I start to book a motel, for example, I'll say, do I get any kind of benefit because I'm getting old? And they usually laugh and they say, well, yes, if you're a member of AARP. And I said, I am. And they say, well, we're going to give you a discount then. And I say, I'll take it. Yeah, the, the opposite has happened to me at two different grocery stores mm. where despite the fact that I'm about half gray up here and very gray here, mm. they've asked me for ID. <laughs> <laughs> and I go, cool. is this not a clue for you? Yeah. That's <laughs> and they look at me like I'm a moron and <laughs> it just makes you go, the world is is upside down, which is kind of a lead in for where we're headed yeah, today. Sort of is because the kind of new ageism we're talking about really does turn some things upside down and it can be wacko. And this is not the kind of new ageism, new ageism I want to lean into at all, the kind we're no. talking about. No, because in uh, the new ageism we're going to talk about, truth is relative. Mm -hmm. In fact, there are lots of truths. You know, everybody has their own truth. Sure. And there's many ways to get to God, whatever that means to that particular new ager. Right. And, uh, as long as you believe in something, then you're going to be okay. And, and you just determine your faith along the way. And if it's transitory or if it's uh, uneven, well, that's okay because you can just do you and everything is good. Yeah. And yet when you start to follow that to its ultimate conclusion, you come up with some really funny sitcom material. <laughs> as I have seen when people were trying to act that way, because they didn't want to impose any kind of morality on the people around them, which led to them just being nice and smiling while all kinds of mayhem was taking place. But they didn't own responsibility for that because those other people were just doing you, you know, you do you. And that's kind of what happens. We have to have some plumb line of truth by which we measure things in this world. 
And if we follow new ageism to its bizarre conclusions, it doesn't lead anywhere really productive for society. No, in fact, a lot of times when you look into it, it means that you as the new ager will become your own God. Yeah. That's a very familiar phrase. In fact, going all the way back to the garden, mm -hmm. which we do so many times, it's yeah. the same lie. What we're going to do today is just kind of walk through some of the things that we find in New Ageism, mm -hmm. and we're going to see how they have worked their way into the culture, into society, and even into the church. Right. And, uh, we're going to do part of it this time, and we'll do the other part next time when we'll look more closely at how it might be manifesting itself within the church itself. Right. Oh. But it might be good if we kind of look back, not where it is today, but where it came from. Mm -hmm. That is that New Age thinking has its roots in Eastern mysticism, which attempts to bypass the mind. And there's a new organ for perception, and that is called the third eye. And that gives you spiritual light. Mm. And so what happens is one needs to get to the psychic self by training oneself to ignore messages from the mind, or to see the mind is actually achieving cosmic consciousness. That's a, a big term that we see. And then from there, we see that the mind can actually create reality. Yeah, that's a little scary. That sounds a little bit like what happens to some of us husbands when our wives are talking to us about a project they want us to accomplish. And we seem to have ignored those messages from the mind. And we seem to have gone to that inner place where we're really sort of cosmically unconscious. Yes. But in this case, we're actually talking about wanting to ignore those messages from the mind so that we can get in touch with that psychic self that creates some other kind of reality coming into play. And that gets dangerous because when we empty our conscious mind of things, it opens up some possibilities that we're going to be bombarded from some other source. And that's where it gets to be difficult. In fact, I recall that there were some Old Testament studies about early Gnosticism. And there was some mystical connection there with Gnosticism. You could work your way up in this series of things. It was really works-oriented until finally you would sort of unlock that final level and you would reach the place where you could sort of free yourself. And it sounds very similar to that. There are a lot of bleed-overs because it all goes right back. Like you're saying, it all goes back to the earliest days, even in the garden. And there's nothing new under the sun. So Gnosticism, New Age thinking... Eastern mysticism, but it all leads to the same thing. There's darkness and light, and we don't want to open ourselves to the darkness. No, in fact, in a book called Walking Through the Darkness, Neil Anderson has kind of outlined some of the beliefs that we find in New Ageism. So maybe we'll walk through some of those and take a look at how those can affect how we look at the world, and also then take a look at what the scriptures say that might be in direct contrast to that. That's vital, because we always want to contrast it with what the Scripture says, because that's our source of truth. Right. So the first one that he talks about is that this New Age philosophy is actually monism, or the belief that all is one, and one is all. Hmm. There's just a oneness about everything in what we call creation. I'm not hmm. sure the New Agers know where everything came from. What we, we see is that history is not the story of humanity's fall into sin and its restoration by God's grace. Rather, it's humanity's fall into ignorance and the gradual ascent back into enlightenment. Wow. 
And have we ever seen anybody start to gradually ascend? I personally have not. I, I personally have seen a world that's falling apart because it's getting farther and farther away from God. And it's because of sin in the world. I just don't see that that really is happening. So I think this whole basis of monism is not a good basis. No, I mean, we do hear about the age of enlightenment and the Renaissance age and all of that, but it's also right around the time that um, Martin Luther was opening up the scriptures to the masses. So it's a very different take on enlightenment at that point. Yep. Well, secondly, we also see then, in addition to this uh, basis of monism, all is God. And if all is one, including God, then one must conclude that all is God, which kind of sounds an awful lot like pantheism. And there was the god Pan back in the Old Testament. We even see that up near Caesarea Philippi in the New Testament. And Jesus was teaching people about who he was in that same area. And clearly, he differentiated himself from the god Pan. Now, Pan was the god of all nature, which would include trees and snails and books and people and dogs and cats and all that stuff. They're all of one divine essence. And a personal god who has revealed himself in the Bible and in Jesus Christ must therefore be rejected because that's not all a part of this divine all or everything, which is really silly. And that in itself is an illogical statement because Jesus should be included in everything. And yet they would exclude him because of their definition of what everything must include. It just is so illogical. It makes no sense. Yeah, and yet we see that Paul used that very concept when he was preaching, when he said, you have an idol to the unknown God. Let me tell you about him. So it was, you know, taking their belief and bringing it back around to the point where he could use it to share the gospel. Good, uh, good insight. Good point. I remember when he had done that because he knew he, he needed to build a bridge into their world. And he did that by saying, oh, yeah, I happen to know this unknown God that you have a a statue to, and he trumps all the other gods. He, he is the preeminent God, and he is supreme above all other gods. Yeah, so if we take that second point and take, get to the next step of its progression, mm -hmm. we see that there is a change in consciousness, because if we are all part of God, or if we are God, then we need to know that, mm -hmm. and we must then become cosmically conscious we become enlightened and in tuned into that cosmic consciousness. And some will say when they reach that enlightened status that they've been born again, which is an absolute counterfeit to the biblical conversion that we see when, when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus and says, you must be born again. What is essential is not whether we believe or meditate, but whom we believe in and in what we meditate. Christ is the true and personal objective reality, and he said he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father, the real God, except through him. And we find that in, in John 14, 6, which is one of the most powerful verses in the Bible. Oh, so incredibly important. You're so right. And especially because if we start really meditating on these things and clearing our mind, getting a part of who we are as a God, then we just start to think that any thought that comes into our brain, since we're God, must be from God, and that's okay, and we can reinvent ourselves in any number of ways that are very unbiblical and which can be extremely destructive, I might add. So it's so important that we know there's a big difference between the Bible's type of born again in John 3 and this kind of born again in quotes 
where we become cosmically conscious. Very different. Yeah, I think we'll talk a little bit later about the whole concept of meditation and emptying your mind and, and that process that comes within the New Age philosophy, which again is another counterfeit of what we see in Romans, where it says that we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, which really comes from exposure to the scriptures. Righto. Now, here's something else that we find interesting about this, which comes right out of New Ageism. A cosmic evolutionary optimism is taught. There is a new age coming. There will be a new world order. And we get a little wigged out about that phrase. A new world government, in fact. And New Age thinkers, those who fall into many of these categories, believe that there will eventually be a progressive unification of world consciousness. This, according to the Bible, is indeed a counterfeit kingdom, and it's led by Satan. Christ has the true kingdom, and he will one day rule on earth with peace for everybody who accepts him as Savior and King. We can see that all through the New Testament, especially in Revelation 5.13. You know, it's interesting because it sounds like we're headed to the same place, but we really aren't. Mm -hmm. and yet we see that there will be that new world order, that new world government, but it will be under the control of the Antichrist and then Satan himself, which is talked about in Revelation. But we also see there what the true uh, new world is when the fulfillment of Scripture takes place and Christ is actually on his throne. Yeah. Now, what about number five in our list of things coming out of New Ageism? Oh, this one is really fun for New Agers because they get to create their own reality. Ooh. Yes, they believe that they can create reality by what they believe. And by changing what they believe, they can change reality. Hmm. But of course, with all of the moral boundaries being erased, uh, there are no absolutes. And because there is no distinction between good and evil, Nothing has reality until one says that it is reality or says that it is truth. And there's a big rabbit hole to go down there. Oh, man. Because <sighs> if infinite man can create truth, then we are in serious trouble as a society. Yeah. And unless there are absolute eternal truths from an eternal God, then man will eventually be his own destruction, which we also see in Revelation <laughs> If finite man can create his own truth, then society is in serious trouble. Yes. And unless there are eternal absolutes from an eternal God, then man will eventually lead to his own destruction. That is so true. I think that it ought to be pretty obvious to anybody when we're just kind of laying it out there that since we are so finite, we're not in a position of being able to create real truth, and we are in desperate trouble in our society. So what about the sixth point that Neil makes here? He says that New Agers make contact with the kingdom of darkness, and especially getting into mediums and channelers and things like that. Oh, my goodness, that opens people up to all kinds of counterfeit experiences with demons, because when you call on a medium or a channeler and you get this spirit guide coming in there, demons have a really good way of knowing things in the spiritual realm that might really shock us. And we think, oh, how did they know that? Well, it's because there's a lot of power there, not as much power as Christ has, but there is power in darkness. And when we open ourselves to that kind of darkness, we're in serious trouble. This is the kingdom of darkness of which Satan is the head. And those involved in this kind of activity are in contact with a world that is so totally opposed 
to the biblical world that God reveals to us through Jesus Christ, and Christ is the one who defeated Satan on the cross, and one day we'll throw him, cast him into utter darkness forever, and then he's going to rule. But in the meantime, Satan still has some control, not all full control, but he still has some power. And this is one area in which he can really get into people's hearts and minds when people open themselves up to mediums. And so we have to really caution against that. You know, when I was in college, I knew somebody who said they had a spirit guide. And I just kept thinking, it's such a dangerous path because we think, oh, the quintessential picture we have of Satan with the horns and the tail and the pitchfork and all of that is not necessarily what he's going to look like. And neither are the demons, you know, we see him with their little horns and their little mini pitchforks. That's not necessarily how they're going to present themselves to a, a non-believer if they want to keep that believer from experiencing Jesus, because they're going to do whatever it takes to give what we've talked about many times, even this morning, as a counterfeit reality, because what they want is to keep the person from becoming a believer, and so they are going to provide a pleasant experience, such as telling them the things they want to hear, providing a, a counterfeit to what would we would look at as a heavenly experience, something that keeps them coming back to that demonic source instead of reaching out to the God who really wants the very best for them because he loves them so much. Precisely. And I remember having uh, seen a few episodes of daytime television in which there was a very famous medium. And of course, years later, that person was just completely exposed as a total fraud. So many people came forward and said, well, this person told me this was going to happen or this happened. And then I found out later that wasn't even close to the truth. But that person always wants to, and so many of these people that would consider themselves, I'm just a special person who's been gifted with this special sixth sense or whatever you want to call it. But they never say, yes, but you have to repent of sin and you have to trust Christ as your savior. And that's what causes people to think they might be okay when they're not okay. And that's why it's so stinking dangerous. Because like you're saying, it'll keep coming back for this little endorphin or dopamine hit and they feel better in their brain temporarily. But it's not solving their biggest issue, which is we've got sin in our lives, and it has to be atoned for. And the only person who can do that is Jesus Christ. Exactly right. So that's kind of a foundation of some of the beliefs of the, the New Agers. And what we're finding is that some of the practices that are very prominent in the New Age movement are working their way into the church. Mm. We've got a link to a site where we found some of these. Before we actually get into those, why don't you give a preface on how we approach these subjects before we actually get into them? Rick and I both discuss this a lot, and what we see is that sometimes people can come away from some experience they've had, and they become so incredibly zealous about their newfound faith that sometimes without realizing they're doing it, they're kind of creating a new form of legalism, and it's almost works-oriented, and if you can just avoid these things and do these things, then you're okay rather than looking at a balanced approach to developing a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, it's good to put out warnings and say, I was in this subculture, and it was terrible for me, and so now I'm trusting Christ, and he's transforming me because I have this lifelong process that I'm involved with. But we have to be very careful and discerning in not taking things and swinging the pendulum so far to another degree that then we become guilty 
of becoming legalists. Uh, Paul the Apostle kind of set forth some of that stuff, and they were working through some differences when some of the Gentiles were being allowed into the new church. Look at that in the book of Acts, for example. And so they had to try to navigate their way through that. That's why everything continues to come back to what is your relationship with Jesus, and how are you finding out more about him? How is he transforming your life? You get to know him by reading the, the Bible, and especially the New Testament, because he's the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. So some of the things that we have seen in some of the folks that have come out of darkness, we have to put a little cautionary note in there by saying, they're saying that every time that somebody comes in contact with this thing, it's wrong, may not necessarily be. And we'll discuss when those things come up, we'll tell you, tell you what we mean. Okay, so the first thing that we find in a church that is starting to embrace a new age philosophy in one way or another is either watering down the gospel or not preaching the gospel at all. So what we would want to do is to stay away from the churches that avoid teaching the gospel, which in simplicity is that Jesus died to save us from the penalty of our sin. In the new age, there are no discussions that would ever want to offend somebody. So nobody learns about sin or hell or repentance or Jesus' work on the cross or even salvation. Because in the New Age, the belief is that everyone is going to heaven. Uh, New Agers will also believe that you can go to heaven by being a good person. You know, when those scales weigh out, if you got more good than bad, then, then you're probably okay, which, of course, is, as you mentioned just a minute ago, is salvation by works. Right. And that is totally unbiblical. The lack of gospel teaching sends unsaved New Agers right into the pit of darkness. Yeah. People need to realize that we're all sinners and that everybody needs to embrace the saving grace of Jesus as our Savior. And isn't that the truth? And you can look at a lot of the really popular writers and preachers today. Those who have the largest followings probably fall in some categories into this area. They probably fall into that category of not preaching the full gospel because they want to avoid things that are going to be offensive. Now, I want to be as compassionate as I can when I'm talking to folks. I don't want to be just offensive for offensive's sake. <laughs> you know, there's the offense of the cross, and then there's just being plain offensive. We don't want to be offensive just because we're obnoxious, but we want to be truthful enough to say, I am compassionate. And because of that, I want you to know that the only thing that can save us is Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. That's the gospel. That's what Paul said was of first importance. So if you see people who are really got these huge followings, and they got millions of dollars at their disposal to put their word out there, if you really go into it and start looking at what they're preaching, they're leaving out a lot of important stuff like sin and hell and the consequences of sin and our need for a savior. That's the gospel, which is why the Bible also tells us that there's this narrow road upon which we need to be, and the broad road which leads to destruction. And a lot of these allegedly gospel preachers are on the broad road because they're leaving out the most important things about the gospel. Yeah, so what's another thing that we find creeping into the church that could have its roots in the uh, New Age movement? This one's really kind of disturbing to me because I see it so prevalent these days, and there's so much out there because of the media that we have available to us nowadays, and that's downplaying or even doubting, casting doubt on the Bible as a truthful, trustworthy source. And so if you add to the Bible, for example, any kind of special revelation that contradicts Scripture, 
people can say, yes, but I had this wonderful revelation. Well, where did that revelation come from? If it didn't grow out of your knowledge of the scriptures, then that special revelation could in fact be from hell because it could be a counterfeit. And so the new age opens us to that. And it allows people to tamper with the Bible, rewrite it, reinterpret it some way, rather than looking at everything interpreted through the focus of the gospel and Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. If they're coming up with some other way than the necessity of that gospel to save, then that's not a special revelation. That's a deadly revelation. Yeah, and we see it so often. I haven't seen it particularly in the churches that I've attended, but I know people who have been in churches that will absolutely discount the segments that talk about a particular sin so that certain people would feel welcome. Mm -hmm. But they're not doing them any favors if they're saying that their lifestyle choices are perfectly fine when the Bible says that they are not. And, right. and I know that there are a variety of, of different, I don't want to say necessarily denominations, but some denominations that really cater to people who live a particular lifestyle. And I'm afraid that by doing that, they are signing a, an eternal death warrant for those people who are attending. That's our greatest fear. We don't want to put forward anything that we don't absolutely see as being scriptural. And when the Bible is very clear about certain things like that, including Jesus affirming that some of the things that took place in the Old Testament are still just as true because God is the same yesterday, today, and for forever. He hasn't changed, and he hasn't changed his opinion. Then for people to say suddenly, oh, yes, we've come up with this new insight, and we need to reinterpret that, we think there could be some really deadly consequences to that. And that's why, because of our compassion, we feel like we need to speak out about that. So our third one is kind of interesting because we do see it creeping into the churches in recreational programs and a variety of exercise options for the congregation, and that is the practice of yoga. And if we look way back in its roots, a lot of the poses that are there were bowing down to a specific deity that is not the one true God. And they will say, well, yoga it's just stretching, but depending on where you are on the spectrum, uh, it could easily fall into the, the area of idolatry. So I know you had some thoughts on this in our backstage that, you know, it, it's one of those gray areas that we probably need to address. I think we do. And I think we need to try to come at it through this balanced approach. Uh, I'll take you all the way back 30 years ago, because in the church where I was preaching at the time, the ladies in our church decided they were going to have a small group meeting together because they realized they didn't have a lot of good, healthy practices. Their eating habits weren't all that great. And they came up with a scripturally based book that was about some of the different kinds of food that God gave us and why it's healthy and how we can become more healthy. And they started incorporating a few low aerobic exercises and what they did. And they would have scripture readings and memorizations. And they were really trying to make it a biblical time together. And because some of them were either pre-diabetic or diabetic, they started seeing some real positive differences because of the things they were doing. Now, some of the stuff that if you were to get into their exercise, I didn't go to them, so I, don't, I didn't see them. But if they were doing some of their stretching just because they didn't want to hurt themselves and doing some of these low aerobic exercises, if somebody else walked in and said, oh, you're doing yoga, that's satanic, you can't do that, they might have missed the point. <laughs> they were trying to do things that were healthy because God wants us to have good physical health because our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
they weren't borrowing anything from a satanic ritual. And just because I bow down to reach over and paint a baseboard in my house doesn't mean that I'm bowing down to a, a foreign deity. So we need to be cautious again in saying, what is the intent of the heart? What's the origin of what we're doing and why we're doing it? Are we trying to get ourselves closer to God and to put him first? These ladies were, they, I think they even called it God first, something like that. And over the period of several months, they lost a whole pastor's worth of weight collectively, <laughs> which I thought was really commendable because they were getting to know God better. They were getting into the scriptures. They were becoming physically and spiritually more healthy. So that's not a bad thing. So just to use the word yoga might scare some people. And if you came out of a situation where you knew that that was a satanic practice, then I can see why that would be very scary. But I think we need to be very careful in asking what's the origin of this and how are you using it? Because it's a tool and you can use a screwdriver to undo a screw and fix something, or you can stab somebody with it. You know, it's a tool. Again, some of these things that when people are saying, absolutely, no, you can't do any form of this. I think they're missing some of the point about our relationship with Christ. And however he redeems our life, he can start to show us that some tools can actually be useful in reaching other people for the gospel. So that's the balanced approach that we wanted to bring to that. And what's our next one? Here's one that some people have wrestled with, especially if they came out of a satanic background, like a friend of mine. He started burning all the music in his collection, and he had a huge collection that didn't have biblical lyrics. He said, I'm going to only sing and write music, which is honoring to the Lord. Well, that's commendable. And yet, we also start to see that there are some really talented people in the world, and they may express some things that can help point people to God ultimately. And I think we need to be careful about pendulum swings. I know that uh, there are certain things, practices in churches like Bethel and Hillsong and Elevation, and I started reading into some of those, and some of those are a little bit uh, scary. And yet, I also know that there can be some really good songs that would point people to Christ, and one song, when somebody doesn't know where it came from, is singing it, and they know it's coming right out of Scripture. If it's scriptural, that's still God's truth that came out of Scripture. So, boy, this is a tough subject because you've got the legalists on one hand that would say don't do any songs at all that ever came out of this particular movement and other people might say well can we evaluate every song based on whether it's scriptural or not and i think we need to be careful about sending the pendulums too far into legalism because like we said about paul and the the new church the emerging church back in the new testament especially in the book of acts there were certain things that were becoming legalistic, and it was just taking them right back into the same kind of things that the Sadducees and Pharisees were dealing with. And they said, we don't want to put that into our church either. So we want to be cautious about that, but we want to make sure that we're very careful about the kind of biblical lyrics, especially they're being used in our worship practices in our churches today. Right. And, and the whole music thing is such a, a sacred cow in many churches that yeah. lose focus on what can present the Word of God through music because it's not in the standard hymnal that they had, you know, 50 years ago, sure. or it's, uh, or it is in there and it's not speaking to us today like the new songs do, but as a friend of mine said one day after being in a church that music was uh, very contemporary, I got the message the first time. By the time we got to the seventh, I was bored. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
can be a lot of repetition that way. And I do miss some of those good old hymns. And we in our church actually, I think, have a pretty decent balance because we try to incorporate a lot of the older hymns that have great theology in them. And our folks enjoy singing those along with some of the more contemporary in terms of, of the style of music, some of the more contemporary worship songs as well. And some of the contemporary songwriters have taken the text from some of those and added some more contemporary lyrics and have created some beautiful pieces that have a very nice message. Yeah, absolutely. Some beautiful stuff. So again, discernment is the key, getting into the scriptures, because that's where we're really going to get to know whether we're discerning from scriptural perspective or not. And then if you see something, you feel like, ooh, this one feels like it's really taking us into an area that we don't need to go, then we need to be aware of that. And you've reached the end of part A of episode nine. Stay tuned for part B at the next episode of Monday, Monday afternoon, afternoon Theologians. 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 Theologians.